When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like... Whoa. And... Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody could ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 is the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. And you can also continue to interact with us offline at hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. You can also follow and interact with each of us on our own Twitter handles. A reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app. Podcast platforms everywhere end at Giants.com slash podcast. So we have finally arrived. Congratulations to our staff. Congratulations to our listeners, our followers. We went through an exhausting offseason. Paul, we can finally shed the term offseason. I know you're pumped up. You're exuberant as we get set for the start of training camp, but we can all take a deep breath. Yes, you can hear Let's the round go. of applause. Come in the on, Let's go! <laughs> you know, I'm not going to sleep tonight. Oh, I, I cannot. I'm surprised can... we even slept over the weekend. I, I, a little bit. A little bit. But, you know, uh, there is one more day to go until the guys officially report tomorrow for conditioning drills. That, of course, involves the sprints and the gassers. And then we don't actually get the guys on the field with helmets, uh, T-shirts, and shorts until Wednesday. But nonetheless, my blood is already starting to percolate. And I am not surprised. That should have been... Stated with the premise of a spoiler alert before you even mentioned that line because we knew exactly how you were feeling and how the emotions were boiling, gearing up for the start of training camp. But really, everybody's in the same boat. You have teams across the NFL landscape. They're all reporting. It's all based on, obviously, when the preseason games start. We had, obviously, the two teams that are going to take part in the Hall of Fame game get a little bit of a head start on the rest of the league. But the Giants are going to be front and center. They're going to be getting ready and gearing up for what is going to be a long month ahead before we inch closer to week number one. So we thought on today's program, what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit big picture, what to look for as we get training camp underway. We've also been answering some of these questions along the way, 22 questions in 22 days leading up to the start of training camp. It's our feature up on Giants.com. We've had new questions every day, and there's a few that we have not addressed thus far, so we'll answer that as well. But we'll really go around big picture perspective, and let's start there. Paul, because this was actually a topic on cover three on Giants.com as well. Now that training camp is starting, okay, what's the biggest storylines? What are we looking for? It could be an individual player. It could be a certain facet of the team. There's a lot of different ways that you can put this under the microscope. And I'll start with, at least from a facet standpoint, we're going to now get an idea of maybe what this offense looks like with guys having the pads on as well as the defense. Because we've been talking about this right for months. But what will Brian Dable and what will Mike Kafka do to put their own spin on this offense? Is it a conglomeration of the Bills and the Chiefs? Is it more Buffalo, more Kansas City? And then with Wink Martindale coming over from Baltimore and the aggressive nature that we know he has brought to the table. Well, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to see flashes of it during OTAs and minicamp. Now we actually see the pads come on, the physicality come to the forefront, and then a little bit even more. And it's not going to be full-blown because we're not going to see that until the regular season, but we may get a little bit better idea 
deal once we see some preseason games. There are so many storylines this training camp lands, and in particular, there's a handful of major ones. One is obviously the coaching staff and the coordinators and what they plan to do with this team, as you just outlined a minute ago. The other one's got to be Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley playing for their next contracts. Another one has to be the overall health of this club, which has been absolutely decimated for the last decade. And then the other one, two actually, have to be the secondary, which is incredibly young and inexperienced overall, and the rebuilt offensive line, although it's kind of funny. When you prioritize those major storylines, do I dare say that the offensive line actually takes a little bit of a back seat and is lower on the list than it's been in many, many years? Because with the two bookend first-round picks playing tackle, a experienced and quality right guard now plugged in in Glowinski, a very solid veteran, who is a big coach's favorite in Feliciano at center, even the one question mark, thinking, okay, is Shane Lemieux going to hold on to that job at left guard, which he seems to have grabbed during the spring, that to me is is almost, almost the only real question. I I just, I, I, I almost hesitate to say it, but I kind of have to. I just don't know if I have as many doubts about that starting five offensive line um, as I do about some of the other issues that I just outlined. Well, I'm completely with you, and I don't know if I would necessarily classify it in terms of confidence or doubt for me because, remember, we got to see these guys get on the field. Chemistry, we have not seen them. We've only seen the individual parts. So I'm of the philosophy... I'm a show-me type of guy. Until I see it, right, I don't necessarily guarantee you or crown the group, and I'm not saying you were, but I think the way that you hit it on, which is the fact that Shane Lemieux is really the only one that you could argue maybe battling for a job, maybe looking to solidify a job. So from that standpoint, I don't think there's as much unknown surrounding the offensive line in comparison to previous years. So it's funny because I was going to go into the direction of, well, what position are you focusing in on as training camp starts? On offense? Not the offensive line. It would take a backseat. I'm completely with you. I would put tight end, Paul, to me is probably the position to watch because I think it's wide open roles, how these guys perform, whether or not one guy's going to be a blocker or another one's going to be a wide receiver. That I'd put, and then maybe wide receiver would even be second given the depth at that position and how many players do they keep at that spot. And then maybe I'd put the offensive line third on the list and then defense, you know, you laid it out. Secondary to me wins by a landslide Mm -hmm. because it's a young group There's jobs up for grabs, and the fact that James Bradbury is not in the picture, who is going to be the at least second corner opposite of Dory Jackson. So when you take a look from all of those angles, as I just mentioned, yeah, this may be the first time in the last few years where you're putting offensive line. If you just look at it from a team perspective, offensive line just makes maybe the top five in terms of the positions to monitor. That says a lot about where this team is, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it has really been slim pickings on that line almost every offseason going back again to almost a decade ago. And every time they thought that they had guys who they could plug in and become functional for one reason or another, and there are many, it did not work out. And it just turned into being a, a crumbling house of cards. I don't necessarily think that's the case right now. I, I have a lot of confidence in at least four, and I I happen to like Shane Lemieux. I know there are other people out there who still have doubts about him. I tend to lean more towards I think he's going to be good enough, and I think he will hold down that job. So so I really have a lot of, geez, I hate to use the word comfort, but I certainly have a lot of realistic optimism about that starting five. But let me go back to your point about the tight ends and the receivers, Lance. And I think this is rather interesting because part of the scheme question that we've already raised, how many snaps are the offensive linemen even going to see on a weekly basis? Uh, Not offensive line, the tight ends. I'm sorry, I misspoke. And if you consider that even though it is the most wide open position on the depth chart, you and I agree, how could we not? It's so clear. At the same time, how many snaps are available 
for the tight end position in this offense on a weekly basis. I think it's going to depend on matchups. I think it will vary on a consistent uh, um, consistent basis. There may be some occasions where we see double tight ends, but I don't think we're going to see a lot of that. And so, to me, the wide receiver depth chart, not knowing uh, how Galladay's going to perform, not knowing how healthy Slayton is and if he'll bounce back to be in the receiver we all think he can be, not knowing if Tony is going to be healthy and be able to play all 17 games, not knowing how quickly Wandell Robinson is going to strut his stuff as a rookie. When you consider all of those questions, I do think the wide receiver position is much more in doubt for me because you know they're on the field all the time. And in fact, figuring Dable and Kafka's offenses, they'll probably see a lot of three and four wides during the course of Sundays. So I think, I think the tight end position to some degree will be minimized. So I'm not as itchy, if you will, to find out how that depth chart is going to shake out, even though you're correct. It is the most wide-open depth chart on the team. Well, and it goes back to what you highlighted. I think the reason why I'm interested in that position is, A, how much usage, and who perhaps do they really want to take a closer look at and expose them to different situations within the offense. The other thing that you got me thinking about, Paul, and we've had this conversation around this time of the year in previous seasons, let's go down the hypothetical road of maybe tight ends are just not going to be utilized an awful lot. And I'll go back to, I brought this up throughout the offseason. Remember, during the draft, Dable was asked about the tight end position, and what was the first thing he referenced? He said, we went, what, like the final six, seven weeks of last mm-hmm. season in Buffalo where I had one healthy tight end, yeah. and we just went with five wide receivers. We just yeah. utilized more wideouts. So, I mean, right there is evidence. He understands what it's like. Now, that was based on scenario where he just didn't have healthy tight ends, but maybe it got him thinking, and he's looking at the depth chart for wide receiver the same way you just outlined it, and he's saying to himself, Maybe we don't need to keep three tight ends. Maybe he keeps, I'm just, once again, I'm just talking out of line here maybe a little bit to go down a hypothetical road, but maybe they just say, hey, we want two conventional tight ends. We keep maybe Jeremiah Hall, who could play fullback, and that's our three group of players that we can have at the tight end and the fullback, and we're going to keep seven wide receivers. Paul, maybe eight. I mean, eight may be a lot. I mean, that may be asking for something, but... That would not surprise me if maybe in the initial stages of the 53, that could be their thinking. It can't surprise you because, quite honestly, everything's on the table given the fact that you're talking about uh, a new head coach and a new offensive coordinator. I mean, the truth of the matter is nothing should surprise us, Lance. Nothing. Short of keeping two fullbacks. (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) That would maybe be a surprise. But, But you're right. You're right. Why couldn't he just decide, you know what? Hmm. I like that kid Hall as a fullback, and he can catch passes, and he can block, and he can play a little H-back, and yeah, maybe he doubles as the third tight end on occasion if I need one. I, I absolutely could see logic in that. Because I'm trying to find the bills I know kept three tight ends at least. I know based on just the personnel they use. I was looking at what the Chiefs did just as a means of comparison. And remember, Mike Kafka, it's not as if he was the offensive coordinator or somebody high up on the chart with respect to the coaching staff. Dable, you could argue, a little bit more influence because he was the OC. And I'm looking up. So last year, the Chiefs did have four tight ends on the roster, at least to start. Remember, this is the initial 53 that I'm talking about. So things evolve and things change. Now that doesn't mean, once again, that they're going to carry that over to the Giants. And remember, here's another guy that's going to influence the equation, Joe Shane. Right, He's going to have some say based on what he views based on the tight ends in the preseason and in training camp. And they'll have conversations with Brian Dable. So you know, there's a lot of factors in play. It's just the more and more you were talking about the receiving core and if they utilize four wide receivers or they just they feel a fullback has a little bit more versatility, that to me is a way you retain and you keep additional wide receivers. And if you look at the roster right now, Paul, if I was to go to you as the head coach of the Giants, okay? I'm Joe Shane. I'm approaching you. You're playing the role of Brian Dable. And I'm saying, hey, I want to give you the flexibility to keep additional wide receivers and get to that seven-man total that I was referring to. I think you'd love to hear that, and you'd be 
all in favor of doing everything you can to maximize more wide receivers because I'm looking at the talent. I'm looking at the guys that can contribute on special teams. I've referenced Robert Foster. We've brought up Richie James before. CJ mm -hmm. Board is a guy that has experience. It's not like, I guess my point is, Paul, you're not stretching in and saying we're going to keep a guy for the sake of keeping a guy. You'd actually be keeping players that I think could contribute in other critical areas. I would agree with you, and that's the beauty of having receivers who also have special teams experience. You know, Slayton does not. If Slayton makes this team, and I think he will as long as he's healthy, he becomes one of the higher-end depth chart guys at the spot, and he makes the, the, uh, the team as a receiver, and that's sure. it. Okay, It's the boards and the Jameses of the world. You're absolutely right. They've got to make this team with the understanding that, fellas, you may see most of your time, if you even play on Sunday, if you get a jersey and you're not inactive, as a special teams guy. And that's just the way it's going to be. And I think, you know, those fellas understand that. I think the interesting part about Jeremiah Hall, now remember something, free agent coming out of Oklahoma. And I called up his numbers because I think it's relevant. In today's game, the fullback is a little bit more used as receiver than he is as a blocker even. I think that's the way most teams tend to, to, to uh, lean on. But look at Kyle Juszczyk in San Francisco. No question. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Lance, did we do this count last year? Uh, was it a dozen teams in the NFL kept a fullback on their roster? I believe it was in that ballpark. Right? Yeah. So just under 50%. So the fullback is coming back a little bit. It's not the dinosaur it was three years ago where there were only like four teams that had a fullback. That position is starting to come to life again. So I looked up Jeremiah Hall and I said, okay, look. We know at almost 250 pounds, this guy is obviously a bull and a blocker. You don't play for the Sooners unless you block as a fullback. Oh, yeah. But in 13 games last year, he caught over 30 passes for four touchdowns and over 330 yards. Now, that's over 10 yards a catch. So he was productive in the passing game. I think you and I both would agree that's going to be intriguing to this offensive staff. 100%. And just to piggyback off of your point, if you look at both the Bills and the Chiefs, why? Because that's where Dable and Kafka came from, respectively. Last season, each team had a fullback. Just to give you an idea of snap count and maybe what they're thinking, you had Reggie Gilliam was the fullback for the Bills. He played 13% of their offensive snaps. The Chiefs had Michael Burden, who also was with the Saints. He's had experience as a running back, local Rutgers product, actually. He only played 8% of the snaps. So in both situations, Paul, they weren't on the field very often, but they still retained the guy that assumed that position. And off the top of my head, I mean, I know Burden had a rushing touchdown late in the season, I believe, against the Chargers for the Chiefs. I don't remember Gilliam doing really much of anything of note. But that's more of a reason why what you're talking about with Hall, if Hall could prove to them in training camp and preseason games, hey, I could be a guy that Daniel Jones could dump the ball off to, and I could do a little bit of damage in open space or be somebody that the defense has to account for, then maybe that warrants not only a roster spot, but more usage for the fullback, especially if you have other players on the field that you think can be utilized as a blocker or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's going to be something that they've got to take into consideration. And this may be a situation where Hall simply has to wow the coaches during training camp in the preseason to make sure that he's noticed, to prove that he deserves a spot. Now, if he's quiet and he just kind of blends in and doesn't show anything special, well, maybe the whole idea of having a fullback goes by the wayside. This may simply be the ball is in Hall's court, and it's up to him to prove that, hey, fellas, uh, I know I'm a fullback, but you can't cut me. you got to keep me on this team because there's stuff that I bring to the table that you can use. And I think he himself, as, as, a, as an eager young man trying to enter the NFL, needs to grasp this opportunity, seize it by the throat, and just ball out during the month of August to force them into making a decision of that nature. And on top of that, what he does on special teams, Paul, what yes. he does as a running no back, right? Maybe they say Hall can give us the extra tight end slash the extra running back. Maybe we don't keep 
three additional running backs. Maybe we keep Barkley, Breda, and then we keep, in addition to him, Hall. I don't know. I'm just going over maybe some of the thinking because, once again, I'm going to bring just hardcore examples into the equation. Gilliam, the Bills fullback, he played 73% of the special team snaps last season. Burden was not that high, but he was crossing the barometer of 50% just about. So they had value on the team, and one of the biggest reasons you could argue is because they knew those guys could play on various special teams units. So Hall, I think, needs to prove himself in three categories. If he could show that he could be a versatile tight end, he could be a running back, meaning you give him the ball, maybe short yardage, he could do something. And then third, and probably most important, because I didn't put him necessarily in order, is what he does on special teams. Those three things, he proves that he could do a little bit of everything, be that versatile weapon. Then I think it's an easy decision for the Giants. It justifies you keep him on the roster, and it saves you from having to keep an additional player at tight end or running back, and that to be is a game changer when it comes to constructing your 53-man roster. Now, there is one of those three things where I think he's going to have a lot of difficulty because when you consider that Brightwell and Corbin are also on this roster as running backs. And we know Brightwell could do special teams, by the way. That's uh, yes. well documented. Yes, there's no days. question. And Corbin, I also believe, can return uh, kickoffs. Yep. So you're talking about two guys who were accomplished running backs in college. Uh, Hall as a fullback, <laughs> I just checked on it, 13 carries for 53 yards and one touchdown in three-plus seasons at Oklahoma. Did not have no, not an accomplished running back's resume. So that's one of the three areas where he's going to have quite an uphill battle, and I, I don't know if that's a battle that he even has a chance to win. But the other two, again, if he just totally balls out, yeah, yeah, he could make an impact on those two areas. And then there's that other factor, Lance, which we all know exists because of the expanded practice squads, thanks to COVID a few years ago. Uh, it puts everybody in a make-it scenario whereby you know coaches love to keep guys in the building if there's any chance that they can show them something during the regular season. And so maybe that's a, maybe that's an avenue for Hall. You know, maybe sure. uh, he's the fullback on the scout team. How about this? He's the fullback on the scout team. If he doesn't make the 53, you use him as the scout fullback for the teams you play that may use a fullback during the season. And if nothing else, he becomes a valuable member for the look squad. And maybe at some point during the course of the season, if you decide that you need to bring him up, you could always bring him up. Because if you keep him on that uh, a scout team as, the, uh, as a practice squad player, he's obviously around your team, he's around your players, he's got familiarity. So if one of your tight ends, let's say, goes down, wouldn't you rather just call him up as opposed to grabbing a tight end off the street? Without a doubt, you could just plug him in. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. The other thinking is here... Remember, guys like Brightwell and Corbin, you could put them on the practice squad, right? And then in case, let's say, Barkley or Breida get hurt and you had a roster spot for Hall, you then promote them as an additional running back. That could be the other way to look at it because I guess my point is, and we'll have to see how the preseason plays out, but part of the thinking of putting somebody on the practice squad, Paul, is you don't believe they'll be claimed through the waiver process, right, number one, right. when you finalize the 53-man roster, and you think that they have a legitimate chance to actually stay on the practice squad and they won't be plucked away by another team. It's fair to say Brightwell hasn't done much at this point in his NFL career unless somebody was just enamored with him a few years ago <laughs> through the draft, right, that you're going to be worried about losing him. And Corbin is an undrafted rookie, no different than Jeremiah Hall. So right. my point is they have options if they're really worried about depth and Hall doesn't prove to be the runner on the ground that you were referring to, which clearly he doesn't have much of a resume in college. You could still put Corbin or Brightwell or both on the practice squad and then call one of them up when it's time assuming an injury hits. That would certainly be a consideration. I want to say, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, you may, uh, Brightwell was, what, top three on the team in special teams tackles last year? I will he bring was it up right now. He was certainly high on the list. 
And and I don't have that number handy with me, but as long because I didn't expect to talk about Gary Barlow Hey, you never today. know where we get into the conversation. <laughs> you should be excited. We're going into the depth chart. And I yes. actually have it. I just grabbed it. 44% of the special team snaps he played. And was he top three in special teams tackles? I'm bringing up i only have the snaps here i don't have the tackles let me see if i could find that but just to give you an idea about snap count which i think gives us some type of at least a comparison he was in terms of where he ranked on the team let's see he finished seventh on the team in terms of overall special team snaps so i mean that's pretty high up there just to give you an idea the guys that were ahead of him keon crossing eli penny julian love colin galaspia cam brown and reggie ragland those were the six ahead of him in terms of snap count. I will try to find the special teams tackles. I, I, got I, the, I just that. found you it. Found I, just, I just found it. He had uh, two tackles and six assists for a total. He was in on eight tackles on special teams. Uh, Elijah Perry had nine. Julian Love had ten. Cam Brown had nine. And Keon Crossland had 11. So that would put him tied for fourth. In special teams tackles, when you look at the total tackle count on special teams last year. So he certainly provided value in that arena. And remember, Thomas McGahee stays as special teams coordinator, so that should help Brightwell's cause because you're not proving yourself to a new coordinator. McGahee at least has an idea of what Brightwell brings to the table. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Remember, there's a lot of different layers to all of the players because of either their coaching connections, the depth chart, and so forth. So it's interesting as more and more we talk about the different positions, it just goes to prove that offensive line is justified in maybe taking the fourth seat or the fifth seat overall with respect to the roster. But I do want to mention one other thing with respect to the offensive line, which you were hinting at earlier in the show when you said Shane Lemieux is the one guy that may have to prove himself, but at least still has a good hold. When you look at the depth chart at this point, and we were to start to think about, okay, who is his biggest threat, Paul? Shane Lemieux. I mean, competition-wise. You could say Max Garcia is an option at guard because he could play both center and guard. Yes. Jameel Douglas, right, who they brought over from Buffalo. He's another guy. And then Joshua Zudu, who is a versatile player at North Carolina. I would think those are the three, unless there's somebody else that jumps out to you that would be a threat to push Lemieux for that starting job. I don't really see anybody else because I think other guys are either maybe trying to cross-promote themselves between tackle and guard, and Matt Gono, we know, is more of a tackle than a guard, at least the way that I look at him. Maybe you want to throw in Ben Bredesen, but, you know, once again, he had his opportunities last season. I think the reason why they brought in the personnel is they want to look to upgrade. And Nick Gates, I mean, there's questions about his health being ready to go just being on the 53-man roster. So I wouldn't necessarily say that he's now a threat to come in at the guard spot. Yeah, and for me, I mean, it's clear Max Garcia, the uh, free agent they signed off the Cardinals roster, is the most accomplished yep. in terms of the competition. He's got the thickest resume, so to speak. Sure. I do think long-term, long-term, there is a possibility that Joshua Izudo is going to wind up somewhere in this mix along the front of the offensive line over the course of the next two or three years. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen right now. But a third-round draft pick, you know, the idea is that at some point, <laughs> you know, in the next two or three years, he challenges for a starting job. I think it's a lot to ask him to challenge for that job this season. So I would say Garcia is probably the most likely challenger to try to wrestle the job away from the Mew. And that's more of a reason why. I just wanted to lay that out for the sake of our audience. Not that I think everybody's wondering, wow, how come they're not prioritizing and putting the offensive line high on the position to watch? It's just, as we just broke down... We're talking about one guy that maybe legitimately is going to push Lemieux, and it's just one position on the line. So the more and more we discuss this, tight end, wide receiver, and running back, I would say, are positions on the back end of the depth chart to monitor more so than the offensive line. And here's the other thing, and I think you were getting at this also earlier. How much playing time, Paul, does Brian Dable give this starting group. I know you're a proponent of, you want to see these guys get as much work as possible for the sake of chemistry. And I'm with you. 
I am never one to, you know, I never shy away from playing guys in the preseason. I'm not one to put them in bubble wrap and be like, uh-oh, I'm worried they're going to hurt a finger and we're going to lose them for three to four weeks. Football's a physical game. It's the nature of the beast. That's why we talk about depth chart at nauseum. So I have no problem with playing these guys a lot throughout the preseason, but... He may have the mindset, Feliciano's a polished veteran, Glowinski's been in the league, Evan Neal and Shane Lemieux you want to see, Andrew Thomas also coming off an injury, maybe you take it a little bit easy on him. The more and more you think about it, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe two or three of the guys get a lot more work than maybe the entire line overall. Well, you see, you, you and I are on the same page there, and I know our other cohorts, you know, Jeff and John, are on the other side of it. They're like, no, there's no way you take a chance with this and keep those guys out as much as possible. Now, what I did do, I went back to last year's uh, Buffalo Bills preseason games, and I looked at their game books. And, for example, now, they didn't have their full starting five uh, healthy and ready to go for the first preseason game, but... The bulk of their offensive line played a minimum of 60 snaps in their first preseason game last year. That's not and bad. I, that's, that's, well, again, that was the guys who started the game. Now, they didn't have all five starters available for that game, so it's kind of skewed. I, I, don't know, I don't know how we should really value or rate that number. Like for example, right? Let me let me go back to that game for a second because I, I I had I had this I had these notes pulled up. So if we go back to last year, um, they had their starting offensive line was Brown, uh, Bettiger, Joe um, Bates, Ford, and Hart. Now we know that's not their starting five for the season, but that's who they were able to start for various reasons in preseason game number one. And each of those guys played a minimum of sixty percent. Now would they have altered that? and played them less if they were using all five of their regulars in that game? I just don't know the answer to that. And that, and really, until we get a question like that, and we'll have a chance to talk to Dable. Uh, his first presser, by the way, is going to be on Wednesday, folks, just so you know. The Giants will not have any media availability. I digress for a minute just to give you the schedule. No media availability tomorrow when the entire team must be here to report and they'll go through their conditioning drills which is really sprints and gassers they'll check in they'll weigh in uh etc etc uh there's no media avails for that tomorrow we'll be here to do big blue kickoff live but there will be no media avails then on wednesday is the first official practice helmets shirts and shorts that's it for the first couple of days of training camp and coach dable will have a press availability uh, on Wednesday. So maybe that's our chance. And Joe Shane, by the way, is set to speak too, if yes, I'm correct. Yes, that is correct. That is correct. But I don't think he's going to talk much about playing. No, time. but Dable's the one who's going to sure, determine but that. In fairness, Paul, and not to say that you were going down this road, but there's going to be more to discuss from Dable's perspective on Wednesday than there would be tomorrow, given the fact that, I mean, you're just yeah. making sure everybody shows up, gets through the conditioning test. I think he'd have more answers with respect to the roster and the overall health on Wednesday as they get ready to go out on the practice field. Now, to go back to the, uh, to go back to the, to the Bills, again, he had uh, some substitutes on that offensive line in Game 2. But when he finally got to Game 3, they played the Green Bay Packers. And now, that's where you see their line. From left to right, Dawkins, Feliciano, Morris, Ford, and Williams. That was the starting five that the Bills went into the regular season with. And that was the only one of the three preseason games where they were able to start. Now, again, I don't know what all the circumstances were surrounding that, but when you look at what those guys played in that game, uh, they all played a minimum of... Uh, do, 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 minimum of 60% of the snaps. Well, and that's why it gives you an idea of was his thinking B 
because he didn't have his full offensive line at his disposal earlier in the season, Paul, and he said, now I want to give them the work in the third preseason game, meaning if he gave them work in the first and the second game, let's say everybody was fully healthy, would he have then said, you know what, I'm not going to play him in the third preseason game? That's the other wild card, right? We just we don't have the full picture no. of what he was thinking. And remember, here's the other thing. Brian Dable was the offensive coordinator in Buffalo. I'm not saying that he didn't have any influence, but remember, Sean McDermott is the real guy that was pushing the buttons in terms of roster decisions and who's going to play when and where. Now Dable's in the head coaching chair. Did he differ from McDermott's logic? Was he in line with McDermott's logic? That's the other thing. That's a bit of a wild card, too, that you have to take into consideration. Oh, I don't think there's any question that that could be a component. I also think, though, that... Uh, both Dable and Shane coming from the Bills organization, you could argue the other way and say that they were probably heavily influenced by whatever McDaniel decided to do, uh, McDermott decided to do. Sure. Well, and that's why, you know, once again, we're having this conversation for that very reason. To say that, A, you can look at Buffalo, you could look at Kansas City, but there's only so much you could take away from those two teams because now individuals are in different positions when it comes to the decision-making process. But, I mean, going back to the center of this conversation, I think given the fact that there's a lot of new faces on the line and you have young guys, there's a value in playing them in the preseason. I am completely with you, Paul, but I think Neil and Lemieux have more of a case to play than the other three guys. And the reason being is because, once again, Feliciano and Glowinski have a lot of experience in the league. Thomas, maybe you're just trying to make sure he's okay because he is coming off of off-season surgery and so forth. Ankle. Whereas Lemieux's been far removed from game action, and Neil is a rookie. He's just getting his first taste of the NFL. Well, I do think that there is a benefit with Feliciano and Glowinski both having worked with Bobby Johnson the offensive line coach. Glowinski did when they were both with the Colts. Feliciano obviously worked with him with the Bills. I think that can help their symmetry or their chemistry, if you will, grow a little quicker than maybe if you had a rookie in there or guys who did not have any experience with each other. There is a connection between Feliciano and Glowinski. In fact, when I talked to those guys uh, earlier, uh, a couple of months ago, they, they've known each other actually for quite a long time. They were coming out in the same class, I believe, in college and actually had gone to one of the All-Star games together. So these guys, they already have some type of bond going in. And that, of course, is going to help. I think when we look at last year's Bills starting offensive line, we must also realize they didn't have any rookies on that starting offensive line. And to be frank with you, you know, Shane Lemieux, I mean, he was a rookie and didn't even play the full season, although he played a lot as a rookie. He didn't play the full season. And then last year, he became basically a redshirt because he was IR. So he's still green. And I don't mean Oregon green either, but he's still green, <laughs> right? I mean, it's fair to say. Sure. He's yeah. not a grizzled, wily veteran. So he certainly, as you mentioned a moment ago, he could benefit from as many preseason snaps as possible, as could Neil. And I think I, think I would probably want to see Thomas get a little more too. Feliciano and Glowinski would be the two guys I would think if you had to calculate the number of preseason snaps the five guys will play. Feliciano and Glowinski would play the fewest, but I'd still like to see the unit as a whole, a five-man unit, play much more than I think most people would. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, once again, I think there is value behind that overall, so this way you have that nice, smooth transition into week one of the NFL schedule against Tennessee, and it's not more of, all right, now the first few weeks of the year is piecemeal in trying to get all these guys on the same page, especially assuming that they're all healthy and there's no bumps or bruises that they're dealing with during the course of training camp. So those are some storylines to watch and position battles to monitor as we get set for the beginning of training camp. What we also want to do, but before I move on, Paul, I don't know, is there anything else in your mind that you wanted to bring to the table with respect to position battles or storylines as we get set for training camp? I want to at least offer you the floor before I move on to another topic. Well, if we could just touch on the running back situation one more time, uh, Antonio Williams is a guy they brought down from Buffalo 
during this offseason, and he was a very quick signee, as you'll recall, Lance. They didn't waste much time. They immediately got their clutches into Williams when they got down here. That is a Shane and Dable from Buffalo. And the only game that Williams has ever played in his two-year NFL career was just a couple of years ago when he played against the Dolphins. They had had injuries up in Buffalo, and he ran for like 15 times for 60-something yards and a couple of touchdowns. There's a reason why they brought him here. I don't know what it is yet because we haven't seen the running backs really put their wares on display. We will look at those things over the course of the next month. But I, I just something in the back of my mind says, boy, they certainly made a concerted effort to get him here in a hurry. I wonder why. I need to see. What is there that they saw that they felt so compelled to bring him down from Buffalo? Does the, you know are, are we ignoring him in the running back mix? I guess that's the question I'm asking you. If they're going to keep three running backs, sure. should he be in consideration as, as a number three? No, it's a fair question. I mean, also it could have been, hey, this is somebody that was available. We have familiarity with him. Let's give him a legitimate shot to come in, compete all the way from the beginning of the offseason process. Because remember, since that addition, let's just keep this in mind, Matt Breida then was brought in, mm -hmm. right, Paul? And he also mm -hmm. has ties to the Buffalo Bills. So I guess what I'm saying is it's fair to raise that question. Is it they're extremely intrigued with him or it was a matter of timing in the offseason? Hey, we like you. We think you're a good fit. Come and compete. And then, hey, we're also going to continue to explore other options, right, as the offseason plays out. It's just it happened so early in the process and so many other transactions in the draft has happened since. I just I don't know whether or not it gives him a significant leg up, especially since, I mean, let's face it, not that we're expecting anybody to make an overwhelming amount of noise over the course of OTAs and minicamp, considering the pads are not on and there's no physicality, but he wasn't stealing headlines, I guess is what I'm saying this offseason, no. Paul, right? And I think that's why he becomes a mystery, though. Sure, yeah. Because we just don't know enough about him or about what they thought of him in Buffalo. And for that reason, he defines mystery to me. And those guys, the, the mystery guys, are always ones that, you know, you need to get more information on and you've got to keep an eye on because one way or the other, and it may simply be that he plays himself off the depth chart or maybe plays himself on the practice squad. But he's somebody who I think I need to, to watch a little bit. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. No, and it's a fair point. And that's one of the reasons why we're taking the time now to truly peel back all the layers of this roster because there are guys that we haven't emphasized a lot over the course of the offseason that get overlooked. And now we'll actually see them out on the practice field on a consistent basis. Okay, so that completes at least our thorough breakdown of the storylines <laughs> and the different position battles. Now what I want to get to is, as I teased right at the top of the show, is the 22 questions in 20 days feature that we have up on Giants.com leading up to training camp. We have been answering a number of these questions on various shows. We're getting down to the nitty-gritty, but there's a few that we have not talked about, so I figure why not spend some time getting to that and... One of the ones that I think is interesting is number 18. Who could be the comeback player of the year candidate for the Giants this season? And there's a number of guys that you could take into consideration. So I'll let you go first because I actually I answered this one on Giants.com. So my answer is there. I'll let you take a swing at it first if you want, Paul. Oh, there, there, there are only two for me. Okay. And, and it depends on how you want to define or put context around comeback player. Because, obviously, with the injury to Shane Lemieux, he lost the whole season. He played a half. Sure. Okay? So, if he winds up starting week one and lasts the full 17 games as their starting left guard, to me, immediately he gets, he gets the award. I mean, talking about playing one half compared to being a starter for 17 games – you can't, you can't beat that. That, to me, is the true definition of comeback. Uh, now, if you don't want to consider injury history, although obviously it's got to be somewhat in the meatloaf, 
You'll notice it the has food, to. Yeah. food food analogy. You got to use a food analogy. <laughs> yes. Uh, Though you went meatloaf. You didn't go pasta or anything like that. But no, I no. I went, yes. I went meatloaf because yeah. there are a lot of components to the comeback term, I do believe. Uh, Kenny Galladay would be a great candidate because I, I certainly believe he is a legitimate threat to be a another 1,000-yard receiver, as he has already done twice in his career. And God knows last season, without scoring a touchdown, everything went wrong for him last year, whether it was his ankle was hurting, his knee was hurting, his hip was hurting, his psyche was hurting, and it just turned out to be a very nondescript season. But if he puts up 1,000 yards as a quality number one receiver again, you could make a very strong case for him. But again, I have to go back to the injury factor. And I think if Shane Lemieux starts for the full 17-game campaign, I would not be able to wrestle it away from him. I'm thinking and I'm looking back at the players that actually won NFL Comeback Player of the Year, the actual award that's given out at the end of the season. And I would say, off the top of my head, most of the players that win the award, Paul, are guys coming back from injury. It's very rare that it's, hey, he just had a down year, and now we're going to give him the award. So I'm with you. When I answered this question, I was taking into consideration injury, and I was also taking into consideration you missed the majority of the year due to injury. Because the reason I said there are multiple candidates, in fairness, Daniel Jones you could consider for this. But Daniel played still the bulk of last season. I mean, I know he missed the final six games, but... 11 games out of 17, that's many more than you brought up with Shane Lemieux. No doubt. completely absent. So that's why I eliminated Daniel Jones from contention and by the way, when I was answering the question. Daniel Jones actually played pretty well last year. Contrary to what his critics want to tell you, the only number where Daniel Jones was really substandard was in touchdown passes. And that's because look at the rest of the offense and how it performed around him. All of his other numbers were very acceptable, whether it be his completion percentage, uh, his interception percentage. Obviously, you know, he did a pretty good job of running with the ball when he had to. Daniel Jones actually played pretty well until he got injured. And that's why I went with Blake Martinez, which I'm surprised you didn't bring up. I don't know if you were even considering him, but I give Blake the edge over Shane Lemieux. And the reason why I put Blake ahead of Shane Lemieux is, remember, Blake got hurt in the third game of the season against the Falcons. So to me, he fits the equation of missing the majority of the season. I think if you're going by the criteria, I don't think it's a stretch. Mm -hmm. I just think Martinez has more of the potential of a significant impact on the team slash roster than Shane Lemieux. Not to take anything away from Lemieux, but, you know, once again, you could be a really good offensive lineman if the other guys are not cooperating on the same page. It sort of diminishes your value and your impact. Blake, middle linebacker, it'll be very interesting how he fits into Wink Martindale's scheme, but as an individual isolated on an island, I just think Blake can be more of an impactful guy than Shane Lemieux. So that's why I would give Blake Martinez the edge. Very fair. You know, very fair. What was it, week three he got hurt last yep, year? against Atlanta. Yep. You know, uh, so he played a little bit more than Lemieux, but, but barely. I think it, I mean, we're barely, yeah. barely. <laughs> I think it's still safe to say if he plays all 17 games, that is a huge win for the Giants. And sure. I don't expect him to come off the field. Now, again, part of part of what we're still trying to sort through is what do these coordinators want to do with these players? Is it possible? And I suppose it is, Lance. I mean, I said earlier. Nothing can be surprising to us because we just don't know what these guys want to do. If if uh, Blake Martinez is no longer a 100% snap count player, maybe there's no linebacker on this team who sure. plays 100% of the snaps. Maybe everybody becomes a situational substitution guy, and maybe Martinez, even though he's the heart and soul He is going to be the signal caller. He's going to be the leader of the defense. Would it shock you if he only played 80% of the snaps this year? And see, that's the one thing that would separate him from Lemieux. If Lemieux starts all 17, he's going to play 100% of the snaps. I don't think you're going to get him off the field. But, But Blake, there may be packages where Wink just goes hog wild crazy with an exotic scheme, and you don't even see Blake Martinez on the field. Yeah, it's possible. But I would say, even based on what you just laid out, Paul, if in, even if he plays 80% of the snaps, I still think that's impactful enough. 
compared okay. to an offensive lineman that's on the field for every single play. I would still go so far. Now, if you want to talk about if you're telling me Blake's going to get his snaps cut in half, okay, then I'm like, all right, maybe Blake is not necessarily warranted in being the comeback player of the year. But even a small dip, I would still be comfortable in giving him that label. The Galladay choice is maybe the most intriguing one because Galladay did deal with injuries, but just the fact that his overall production was nowhere near what we saw with the Lions, you know, he sort of fits the profile of both sides if you're looking at comeback player of the year, right? You're looking at the injury component, and then you're looking at just the production wasn't there. So I think, and I wasn't considering Galladay when I was even answering the question, but the more and more I'm thinking about it, Galladay may be the one guy on the roster that meets both if you want to look at it from both sides of the equation. Well, there's no doubt. I mean, he was gimpy all season long. Yep. And the production was very substandard. Well, I mean, the guy had no touchdowns. Now, see, <laughs> so now that, that alone. That, yeah, and so that in itself, you like you say, it, it gives you both ends of the equation because, see, if Martinez comes back and, let's say, plays 90% of the snaps, let's go midpoint of the number we were throwing out hypothetically, and has 140 tackles, well, that's what he usually did anyway. You know, he's just like, okay, there, was no, there wasn't a comeback in terms of performance. There was strict, strictly a comeback in terms of injury. For Galladay, if he puts up 1,000 yards and plays 17 games uh, and is healthy to do so, well, that's a comeback in, in two respects. It's a comeback in terms of production, and it's also a comeback in terms of durability. Because, look, Lance, let's not pull any punches here. That is not the guy that the Giants thought they were going to get last year when they signed him. No, not at all. I don't think anybody, if you would have told anybody on the coaching staff or the front office, you're bringing in Kenny Galladay, you're making that type of an investment, and he's going to wind up finishing with 521 receiving yards and no touchdowns, I think everyone in the building would have laughed at you and said you're absolutely crazy and nuts. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that I found even remotely acceptable about Galladay's year last season was the 14 yards a catch. Okay. Personally, personally, I think you got to get 16 out of him, which is what his career average is anyway. I think for him to be a wide receiver one, so to speak, you need 1,000 yards and at least 16 yards a catch. And if you can get six to eight touchdowns, you know, I think they're going to spread the ball around a lot, so I don't necessarily know... Uh, in the red zone, what his touchdown number is going to be. But Kenny Galladay needs to be a big play guy between the 20s, at the very least. In terms of red zone, I have absolutely no idea how specific Kafka and Dable have planned out their red zone attack right now in terms of who's going to get more touches and who are they going to rely on. I know this, with a better offensive line, Lance, they better damn well run the ball into the end zone a hell of a lot more than they've tried in the past. Considering that has been their Achilles heel, just red zone execution overall, when you have a good run game, it can certainly allay your fears when it comes to that department. So I, I think that's a very fair point, and it can alleviate and take some pressure off of Daniel Jones, that he doesn't have to necessarily try to throw it into tight spaces, even though he may have some guys with some size like Galladay. It's just the reason why the more and more I look at these numbers is Galladay played 14 games last season, Paul. Okay, 14 games. His career low previous to this season when he played at least double-digit games, just to give you an idea, was 477 receiving yards. That means that he barely got past that mark last season, even though he played three more games than he did in 2017. Clearly, he played more snaps, and he started nine more games than he did as a rookie in 2017. And he still managed three touchdowns in mm -hmm. 2017. So, I mean, those are why everything, the more and more you analyze it, is jaw-dropping. I mean, for the lack of a better phrase. Oh, it really is. Right? I mean, what, what else and, are you going to say? And look at it this way, right? He played 75% of the snaps for the Giants last year, and in the 2,000-yard seasons that he had with the Lions. So that's 18 and 19, just so our listeners understand. Right, right. He played 90% and 87% of the snaps. I mean, this is a guy who should very, very, very rarely come off the field when your offense is out there. He needs to not only be a producer 
in terms of making plays. He needs to be a threat. And you can't be a threat if you're on the bench. No doubt about it. So that is one of the intriguing questions. Number 18, who's your comeback player of the year candidate? Let's see if we can squeeze in a few more. But before we do that, a few reminders just to mention as we are now getting even closer to the start of the season. Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2022 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seat starting at just 100 bucks. Call 888-NYG-1925 or you can visit Giants.com tickets for more information. Also, don't miss your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience. Watching Giants games and world-class concerts in 2022 as a Giants suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available, or you can place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925, or you can visit Giants.com suites for more information. Lance Metal Paul Dottino with you here, Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. As we are going over the big picture perspective of the team as we get set for the start of training camp, we have talked about the storylines to watch, the position battles, and now we're going over some of the highlighted questions from our 22 questions in 22 days leading up to training camp. So we talked about in previous shows, X-Factors, sleeper players. What about we go to the top of the food chain here? Who is going to be the special teams MVP? and the defensive MVP, meaning the most valuable player, and we're projecting based on how the season plays out, or you could even say, hey, somebody they can't afford to lose, you can also interpret it, right, Paul? We're talking about comeback player of the year. There's different variations, interpretations. MVP, most valuable, most valuable sometimes, it's not just production. It's about if this guy misses time or he's not on the field, the team is going to suffer as a result. So you could go in a lot of different ways, both defense as well as special teams. Well, for defense, uh, it's hard for me not to go with Xavier McKinney. I just, I think the world of this kid, he's got a tremendous attitude. He certainly has the skill set to be a star in this league. Many people, not just Giants people, but many people around the NFL thought he was on the cusp of becoming a, a Pro Bowl player last season, and he didn't get the nod. Very disappointing to, to a lot of us, but... He's right there. He's knocking on the door. And if the Giants are any good at all this year, uh, he should get some more of that attention. And as long as he's healthy, I mean, remember, he missed one game because of COVID last season. But yep. other than that, he looked like the kind of guy who is going to cause headaches. You know, he, he's a potential headache player for an offensive coordinator. So I have to go there, and I, and I don't think it's close now. The other question you're asking, well, I guess I'll, I'll just throw this out at you. I just, I just don't know. You know, we're trying to figure out the 53, and so to figure you know, out who's, who's going to make the roster. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, I just, I just don't know. I don't know. You know who the, who the special teams candidates are, given that we don't even have the 53. But if you you're, you're going to push me for an answer, all right, I, I'll I'll give you one. I hope... I want an answer. Well, I hope, <laughs> I hope, I don't know that this is going to happen, but I hope that the Giants have a return guy, whoever that is, player X, and I'm going to cop out here, but I hope that player X becomes a dynamic return guy, whoever it turns out to be. Could it be Robinson? Could it be Tony? Uh, you know, could it be Richie James? I hope that their return guy is so good that they tilt the field with their kick returns and their punt returns. That's what I hope. I would like that to be the case. Otherwise, short of that, it's going to be Graham Gonneau. How could it not? Well, and that was going to be my answer. So you just stole my answer. Thank you very much. And that's what? who I thought you were going to go with initially. I was going to try to say you don't have to go that crazy to overthink it. You know well, Graham Gonneau, yeah. Well, 37 consecutive made field goals, right, until he missed against New Orleans, and that set the team record. I think it was like fourth longest all time in the NFL as well. I mean, and all the 50 yarders he made. Sure. I mean, that's a layup. I, I wanted to I wanted to no, try to that. see if I we could go that. somewhere else. Sure. And and given that the Giants haven't had a really great return guy since Dominic Hickson, I mean, let, let me let me take that back. Let me take that back. Um, Dwayne Harris. 
Dwayne Howard. And he was, played all four special teams. Dwayne Harris was really, yeah. really good. Really, really good. Hickson and Harris were the, the last two. two yeah, and both of them were not only return guys, but they were gunners. Yep. Those two guys, if they could find somebody who's going to be able to give them that type of production, I would be willing to go there instead of Gano. Here's the other reason why I don't look at Gano as a layup, and it's more of maybe people from the outside looking at it than maybe internally. Couldn't you say that maybe a lot of people are saying, well, if the Giants' offense improves and they don't need to kick as many field goals— then Gano's value dips because last season, right? Or the last two seasons, Paul, field goals sometimes was the biggest accomplishment, right, for this offense. It was painful. Okay. So, therefore, Gano had even more value because he wasn't just a special teams weapon. He was an offensive weapon. Let's face it. So, mm -hmm. I guess are people saying, well, if you think Dable and Kafka and the creativity and the health of the offense, if it goes up, you're not relying on the leg of your kicker. I don't look at it that way. I still think Gano's going to have value because here's the other thing. I don't think extra points are chip shots anymore in today's NFL. So, you know, even if you're going to score more touchdowns, you want that extra point. You don't want to just continue to settle for six. And when you have a reliable guy like that, that could go a long way. So that's more of a reason why I don't look at Gano as necessarily a layup, I guess is what I'm saying, in comparison to what we were talking about well, within the conversation. Let me add this to you, Lance. And we know that in today's game, I mean, holy good God, uh, kickers are making, what, 85 90% of their, of their field goals now. That's just, you know, guys who are any good. So, it's definitely gone up. There's no it's, doubt about it's it. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, these guys, I call them the robo-kickers. That's what this generation of kickers are. They're robo-kickers. And they're hitting 50-yarders like they're nothing. So here's the problem. It's expected of your guy to be able to do that now. It's no longer like it's a luxury to have a guy who's a really good kicker and can not only boot everything inside the 40, but can also be over 50% from 50. That used to be considered a luxury. Now it's a requirement. If you can't do that anymore, a good team doesn't even want you around. Well, but I think there's a distinct difference between expected versus guarantee. And Gano was probably as close to a guarantee as you're going to find over the last two seasons. No doubt. Right? No doubt. So that's the differentiation that I would bring to the forefront. Now, as far as the defensive most valuable player, you mentioned McKinney, and I think you can make a strong case, but... I think Adoree Jackson is very close, Paul. Mm -hmm. You lose Adoree Jackson on this team right now, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. You're Do you really want to go there? No, well, I had to, but that was to make my point. Because I, I disagree with the standpoint that I don't think it's close. And I know you were emphatic and you were emotional about Adoree, about uh, X-Man, uh, X-Man, excuse me, Xavier McKinney, because we have O'Shane Simenez on the team as well. So we have to be careful with the labels. But I think it's close with Adoree based on his veteran leadership, what he brings to the table, and the fact that I think if you're right now, Wink, you know what you got out of it, Tory. Some of these other guys, the jury is still out. So he goes down, it becomes more of a guessing game in the secondary. I would put a Dory right up there with McKinney in terms of the value of the defense. And I know you mentioned, okay, well, maybe Blake's snap count dips a little bit, but Blake to me would be third place on my list because I do think the loss of Blake hurt them immensely in terms of stopping the run last season. It was huge. Right? You know, huge. I talked about Dalvin Tomlinson, and you can't deny that, but on top of that, you bring in Blake? I mean, you're really asking for trouble. So yeah. Blake would be third on my list in terms of the priority of the MVPs. Well, I guess, I guess when you talk about MVP, you have to put it in its proper context. And for, for you, maybe the context is also how far a drop-off if those guys are not playing. Absolutely. It, and that's fair. And if you look at it from that angle, I absolutely, absolutely understand your reasoning for going with Adoree Jackson first. Because after him, man, oh, man. I mean, this, the rest of these corners are as green as celery. Another food analogy. There you like go. So we're keeping track. <laughs> you, you've met your quota today, so thank you. Yes. Uh, so so that's, that is a huge, huge issue. So I understand why you would go there. Now, if you just look at it from just pure performance, who's going to be the most – maybe we just need to change the word, and so maybe your terminology sticks – with that line of thought, because if you change the question to who's going to be the most impactful player on defense, 
Oh, then I think it's yeah. it's a much easier call for McKinney, and I think Blake Martinez is a razor-thin second place for me. Yeah, McKinney because of the versatility and what he could do on the field, but Adoree still makes a strong case. If you I, I would the put word. him third. I would put him third. You'd put him third? Okay. I'd put him third. Well, the reason I say is because, real quickly before we wrap up, if we're talking, if in Wink's defense, the cover corner is so critical... I think even if you word it most impactful, Paul, Adoree's right up there. Because once again, if you're removing him from the equation and you're losing your best cover corner, where else are you going <laughs> I know, I under know. the circumstances? No, I, I think all three guys separate themselves by a wide margin from the rest of the roster. I mean, let me make that very clear. I'm, I'm still going to go with McKinney. And I'm going to go razor thin behind him, Blake, and razor thin behind him, Adoree Jackson. I don't think there's any doubt that those three are on a separate shelf when you talk about impactful and how much importance they have to what uh, you know what Coach Wink is going to want to do. All right, so that is going to wrap up Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Certainly appreciate everybody tuning in. Just a reminder, we are not yet up and running live, but we are still putting out shows on a daily basis. You can access them on Giants.com. You can access them on the mobile app as well as your favorite podcast platform. So please know we are going strong. Our presence hopefully is still felt and that those of you who religiously turn to the program, which we certainly appreciate, you will still have an outlet to do so. Today's episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live, part of the Giants platforms everywhere and Giants.com slash podcast. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadows. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest as the conditioning test comes to the forefront on Tuesday and we inch closer to the first practice on Wednesday. We will speak to you on Tuesday for the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And hmm. not to mention we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.